Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Once it was a shining symbol of American success, Detroit. The Motor City, Motown. But then 50 years ago, and it really was 50 years ago, things started to go horribly wrong. Yeah, violence in the streets, massive depopulation, tension between the city and the suburbs, factories closing down, and finally bankruptcy for the car makers GM and Chrysler. And then the city of Detroit itself hit bottom in 2013, the largest city in America to file for municipal bankruptcy. Today, hardship in the comeback city. Jody Adams Kirshner. I mean, Detroit is just at the sharp end of the most compelling questions facing our country is what do we do with a population of people who don't have the skills for the current economy? So what you're describing is really chaos and a situation where it's very hard for a middle class person or someone with a job to get a foothold and have a good chance at building a home for themselves. I mean, why did people stay? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Why did people stay? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Detroit is on its way back. In some ways, the turnaround since filing for bankruptcy has been pretty remarkable with new jobs. I don't know if you've been to downtown Detroit recently, but the center city has really come back in many ways. There's new businesses. There's new startups all over the place. Even the street cleaning, the street lights seem to be back again. But so much needs to be done with thousands of abandoned homes, high rates of poverty and unemployment. The comeback hasn't come for people in many neighborhoods, elderly people living on city pensions that they were promised have seen sharp cuts in their living standards because of the bankruptcy. Clearly, there are limits to how much bankruptcy can revive a major city. We're going to look at those today. And we'll also learn more about the lives of people who continue to struggle with the broken school system, chaotic real estate market, and lack of jobs in the city. Our guest is Jody Adams Kirshner, author of Broke. Thanks for joining us in our How Do We Fix It studio. Thank you for having me. So Detroit was the largest American city ever to declare bankruptcy, and it did so after decades of decline. So why did this happen? Why did Detroit feel it had to declare bankruptcy? Well, 
It wasn't Detroit's choice. I mean, Detroit's leaders were trying to do everything that they could to stay out of bankruptcy and to avoid having an emergency manager. Um, it laid off a third of its workforce. It raised taxes. It cut police and fire services. Anything that it could do to try to balance its budget, it could do. Bankruptcy is a decision of a state government, and it was the decision of the state governor to appoint an emergency manager who then filed for bankruptcy. And what were some of the factors that went into this? I mean, I I used to cover the auto industry, so I spent a lot lot of time in Detroit. And even just flying over, you could see the distress the city was under. You know, entire blocks had emptied out and that kind of thing. But what were the long-term elements that went into this? I mean, the the large trends that you were talking about, globalization, deindustrialization, suburbanization, that really affect our whole country – And then some more immediate trends, I would say, in the wake of the financial crisis with the federal government cutting discretionary spending to states and states turning around and passing along the brunt of those cuts to cities at the time when cities needed help the most in the wake of the crisis. But Detroit was in worse shape than other cities, right? I mean, I think that Detroit exemplifies all of these trends and then is more extreme in all of them with its fairly single industry status as the motor city. And then as other states were were cutting funding to cities, Michigan was so extreme in that. Between 2003 and 2013, Michigan cut $732 million in state aid to Detroit. It was cutting state aid even as it was pushing Detroit into emergency management. How did you personally become interested in Detroit? Because you're not from there. I'm not. At the time that Detroit and really a lot of other American cities were facing distress, if not bankruptcy. I was teaching and reading about bankruptcy. I was a great believer in the process of bankruptcy. But this was new. I mean, the idea of using bankruptcy for a city as large as Detroit and with problems as complicated as Detroit's, that was a novel use of bankruptcy. And it was being talked about I would say the local coverage and the national coverage, mainstream media was just pretty dramatic about rising municipal debt and looming crisis. In the more academic and policy spheres, it was bankruptcy as a cure-all. We don't have to bail any cities out. We can change pension and union contracts. We should look at doing this even for states. But in all of that discussion, Nobody was really talking about the people or the bigger picture, what it meant for American citizens to live in a distressed city. And so I decided ultimately that it was really very urgent to tell that story. And and boy, I mean, listeners should know that this is not some dry analysis of bankruptcy law, quite the opposite. You spent so much time there, very close to... A lot of the people who live there really at the ground level, and ultimately you zeroed in on the lives of of six people who are very much caught up in this crisis. Tell us about one or two of the people that you spent time with. Well, thank you for saying that it's not dry. That warms (laughs) my heart. That was the goal, to write something that would tell a story and, and capture attention. I mean, to some extent, all of these people are a story about what bankruptcy can and cannot do. And Lola is 
so completely what bankruptcy can't do. I mean, she has a college degree, a four-year bachelor's degree, in a city where about 13% of residents have bachelor's degrees. 13%. So way lower than the national average. Way lower than the national average. High school graduation statistics as well. So that that means there's a real shortage of people with skills and, and with financial resources. Yes, exactly. And I hope we'll talk more about that. But Lola, with her bachelor's degree, she went to a magnet high school in Detroit, arguably the best one. She learned Mandarin Chinese there. She commutes 80 miles a week to a low-skilled job at a call center in the suburbs. She often has to rely on relatives to drive her because she can't afford the high cost of car insurance in Detroit. She is struggling to afford a house that she really doesn't feel safe living in. And she worries a lot about her daughter's education in a public school system where students receive half the funding as students in systems like New York or Boston's. How did you meet her? I met her. I didn't set out with a focus on real estate, but I very quickly in spending time in Detroit started to feel like real estate was a lot of Detroit's situation that in a way it It created a lot of metaphors for the city's situation, given how much of a city's tax base is a property tax base. So I had arranged to spend time with a housing rights organization. Lola came in for counseling, and I was sitting in on that. And then we got together a few days later on her birthday. Lola, you say, commutes 80 miles a day. Is part of that a broader problem, that there are jobs in the suburbs there are employers in the suburbs of Detroit and not in Detroit proper for the kinds of jobs that, say, a Lola would get. Yes, exactly. One episode that I thought was pretty eye-opening was Lola at a certain point. Her call center answers calls about air conditioning systems, and one of her callers says, you should not be talking about air conditioners, you should be selling them. You would be making a lot more money. And in fact, in her neighborhood at the edge of it, there is a Home Depot. It's this very derelict mall that has itself been through bankruptcy. The parking lot is so empty that she generally tells people directions to get to her house by telling them to cut through the parking lot and avoid a traffic light. But there is this Home Depot and they don't have a job. But then she's very clear that even if they had had a job, Her intention wasn't to work at that Home Depot near her house. It was to continue commuting into the suburbs because she knew that she would be paid by commission and she needed to be where the money was and the money was in the suburbs. So everything to do with with jobs and work starts to carry in all of these other issues of the surrounding economy and transportation to the job. She did not see herself ever working close to where she lived. One African-American man who you profiled in your book, a fellow called Charles, is worried that Detroit will become tech town, not Motor City. So I think what he's alluding to is that there could well be more technology jobs, which is right at the heart of growth in many American communities, but that uh, that will come at the expense of of low-skilled workers. Yes, Charles is is looking at the, the progress that the city has made downtown, but he's thinking, is this actually so good for me? 
if it's going to become more expensive, the only way I can afford to live here is to have a really good job in the auto industry. That to him is how he would be able to afford higher rent. He knows that there aren't that many jobs like that available anymore. And this is where, I mean, Detroit is just at the the sharp end of the most compelling questions facing our country is what do we do with a population of people who don't have the skills for the current economy? And in terms of how we fix it, I think that investment there is the most important thing that we can do. Investment and training. Investment and training. We're going to talk more about the people you profiled. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We're speaking with Jody Adams Kirshner, author of the book Broke, Hardship and Resilience in a City of Broken Promises. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's time for our weekly recommendations, Richard, and I've got a really fun one this week. It's a documentary on Netflix called Satan and Adam, and it's a story of a white graduate student from Columbia University here in Manhattan who was up in Harlem in the late 80s and saw this black street musician who called himself Mr. Satan and asked if he could sit in with him. Adam plays harmonica. Anyway, these two guys started hanging out. And you remember what New York was like in the late 80s. Racial tensions were very high. Much higher than they are now. Most, Absolutely. It, it, not, and the city was not nearly as safe as it is Harlem today. And Harlem was not a safe place for anybody of any race. And these guys became partners. They started going on the road. And they toured together for about 10 years. They recorded a couple of albums. Uh, and then... It all kind of fell apart. Satan sort of dropped out of sight. Later, he turns up in a nursing home in Florida. And at that point, the documentary takes a really remarkable turn. I'm not going to give any more. But there's some great music. The music, but it's more than the music. What's really interesting is the, the human story, the relationship between these two men. Great. Now back to Jody Adams Kirshner on Broke and the City of Detroit. I want to ask you about another person you met, Robin. Tell us about him. He has been a filmmaker in Los Angeles, although he himself grew up in in poverty, but a different kind of poverty than Detroit poverty. He grew up in, in more rural poverty in Washington State. 
And he started thinking just more about money and wealth and wanting to have more money and wealth and finding that so much of the country's wealth is is made or held in real estate. And he decides to get involved in real estate investment. And he buys a house in Detroit right before the financial crisis hits. So his whole model changes and he believes in Detroit. He believes in its real estate. But the difficulty he has making a go of it and how hard it is to bring derelict properties into a position of profit, I think shows so much of what the city is up against with these vast swaths of vacancies and abandonment. Now, Joe is another character in the book, and he moves from New Jersey with plans to start a small business. He has cash. He has ideas. He cannot find a space to buy in this sea of abandonment. There's an old nursery he wants to buy, and whoever owns it doesn't want to sell it. He does find a space, and he never knows who he's dealing with. He's paying checks to an LLC at a P.O. box. There are a lot of people who weren't able to get mortgages. Banks naturally reluctant to loan money to people who are buying really decrepit <laughs> structures or who don't have much credit. So people enter into these kind of odd rent-to-buy arrangements in some cases, which I wasn't aware of that kind of system. And it struck me that it was really sort of unregulated and possibly dangerous in terms of protecting the rights of the people who are getting into these deals. Yes, this is a very gray area of the law. Um, the person is not a buyer of a house and so doesn't have the protections of somebody who was taking out a mortgage. And the person also isn't a tenant and doesn't have the protections of landlord-tenant law. Reggie, who the book follows, wants a house so badly He's so excited that a land contract affords a way for him to be able to become a homeowner. And he pays off the loan. He pays off the entire cost of the house, even though when he gets to the house the first time after he's bought it, there is nothing there. There's no pipes. There's no appliances. There's no toilets or sinks or stove or oven. The roof leaks. The walls have condensation when it rains, but he puts all of his savings into fixing up this house, only to find that when he makes his last payment, the person he's been paying disappears, and then he finds that she hasn't been paying the property taxes in accordance with their agreement, and so he's going to lose the so house. So he's liable for all these property taxes. Explain how these deals work. It's like a rent-to-own arrangement. So instead of formally taking out a loan with a bank, or instead of paying all of the purchase price up front, you would pay the seller of the house a down payment and then continue paying them in monthly installment payments until you had reached the total of the sales price. That sales price would be inflated also because it would include a high high percentage of taking into account the risk of default, except that there is no risk of default. Because as soon as the person buying the house misses a single payment, then everything that they've been paid vanishes. So what you're describing is really chaos and a situation where it's very hard for a middle class person or someone with a job to 
get a foothold and have a good chance at building a home for themselves or for their family as well. I mean, why did people stay? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Why did people stay? Detroit lost a lot of population, but it's it's held steady at around 700,000. Down from about 2 million just a couple of decades ago, right? Yes, which contributes to this landscape of abandonment Mm -hmm. as well. So you say that commentators, and I guess that includes mainstream media, have continued to tout Detroit as either a great comeback story or a wholly urban failure. Why is it that neither narrative is correct? That the situation is much more complex. I mean, I don't want to belittle the very real successes that there have been in Detroit. But how far does that go? And then there's a question of of who those successes benefit. I mean, a theme in people that I spoke to was people with construction skills. At the time of the bankruptcy, the city began building a new sports arena with state and city subsidies that were about a billion dollars. It's the the Illich family that owns Little Caesar's Pizza. They promised at the time that in return for the subsidy, they would hire half the construction workers from the city, and it failed to fulfill that promise. Meanwhile, you have Miles in the book who knows how to be a contractor. He knows how to do construction skills. If he had one of those jobs, that would be transformative for him, for his neighborhood, for his family. What is the disconnect that is keeping what's going on downtown exemplified in the arena by spreading to other people like him? But it's not just this heavily subsidized arena. I mean, when I've been in Detroit, I've been struck by some of this revival people talk about with artists moving in, people running little shops. A lot of that entrepreneurial spirit, some people call the, the the maker community, people inventing and building cool little gadgets. And it's attracted a lot of interesting people who want to be in that kind of that kind of environment. Is that on its own a trend that will ultimately help the city revive? I mean it, it's a good thing. It creates a sense of place. It's very hard. One of the people that is is not a main character in the book, but somebody who Joe knows, has opened a bakery in the neighborhood where he lives. She worries about people's ability to afford the kind of baked goods that she's selling and how sustainable that will be in the long term. There's a whole ecosystem that that needs to come around all of this that is difficult to engineer. So let's look at a few solutions. Is there anything that can be done by, for instance, having um, smarter investments? For instance, maybe the Community Development Act or some other form of legislation? Absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of existing spending in cities that is oddly untargeted. And it's it's a lot and in different forms, but it's often very scattershot and could be brought together in a much more targeted way with, with goals tailored to revitalization. Federal money, there is no mechanism currently in place to evaluate the consequences of decisions at the federal level, at the local level. I mean, it's all very well spending a lot more money, but unless it's spent effectively or in, uh, and, and you're able to track what you're spending it on and who you're spending it on, it seems like wasteful. 
And you mentioned the Housing Act. I mean, a lot of federal money is going to states for affordable housing. There are tax credits for that. And there is language about that money needing to go to a concerted community revitalization purpose. And that is language that's never been defined. And so states tend to ignore it. How could, how could the tax system under the housing bill, how could that money be allocated more intelligently? So it would be in the requirements for for what the money would get spent on, and and there could be language that would point towards owner occupancy, owner renovation, as you say, and and none of that exists. So right instead now. of necessarily some some big developer coming and building a lot of low income housing, getting tax breaks, that that individuals who want to buy houses and fix them up and live in them could could have access to some of that. And the city has been looking for ways to deal with empty, vacant space at scale and has a a very interesting pilot program that is supported partially through philanthropy, partially through some federal money. It's called the Fitzgerald Project. And um, it's a very well thought out plan. It makes a lot of sense. It involves rehabilitating houses that have enough going still to be rehabilitating demoing the ones that can't, taking contiguous green space and making a bike path in a park, and then planting non-contiguous green space with meadows and flowers. That project, I think, shows the difficulty of one organization coming in and trying to deal with that many properties at once. I mean, just just getting title to all of them has taken more time than expected, just boarding up houses has taken more time than expected. It's, it's just over five years since Detroit has emerged from bankruptcy. There has been progress in some areas, and I know that, that the city has been in a state of decline for decades. So are you hopeful that over time things will improve for residents who are really kind of struggling to, uh, to, to, to live in a place with uh, inadequate public services and, and protections for them? I really hope so. I mean, Detroit has very strong local leadership, and it has enormous amounts of philanthropic money coming in. So if not in Detroit, then where? My worry is more for for other distressed cities that don't have the kind of national prominence as Detroit has and will not attract that kind of investment. I see bankruptcy as indicative of treatment of cities of really disinvesting in them, imposing austerity measures. Right now, Detroit isn't an example of that. It is really the opposite of austerity going on there because of philanthropy. So interesting. So many different perspectives. Jody Adams Kirshner, author of the book, Broke, Hardship and Resilience in a City of Broken Promises. Thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. I need to start off our conversation with a slight correction. Earlier, I said when I was talking about the decline of population from close to 2 million, I said a couple of decades ago. I really meant more like 
five or six decades ago. Though The Detroit population peaked at just shy of two million back in the 1950s. And really, by 1960, the population was already declining precipitously, and it's gone down ever since. And this has been a story very long in the making. It's not as if this has all of a sudden happened. Detroit fell apart over a long period of time. Yeah. There are two things about this book that really struck me. First, I've already kind of referenced, but it's important for listeners to know, it's a really thoughtful and beautifully written book that is a very close look at the lives of people. It's not really mostly about policy or the pros and cons of bankruptcy or pensions or anything like that. It's mostly about what it's like to live in a city like this. Some of it's harrowing, some of it's inspiring, but I really recommend it. And part of what she's saying is it's all very well to say, Detroit, comeback city, huge success story. She's saying, wait a minute, there are very large parts of the city and very large numbers of people who live in Detroit who are still being left behind. Absolutely, absolutely. But one thing that I often find in these kinds of conversations is among some, there's this assumption that, well, if only aid from the state had stayed at the same level or only the federal government did more to support cities, as if there's a world in which we can just constantly ratchet up the amount of aid that goes to needy cities or areas and that money will always be there and just kind of exist without acknowledging that at some point you you do run out of money and yes a did fall but so did population yeah Um, that's true but I, i would push back somewhat and say that aid to cities is a problem generally speaking, that there needs to be a real look at where money is going and how it's being affected. So the libertarian would say there also needs to be a look at where the money is leaking out of the system. And it's part of a much larger debate. But I do think that there needs to be a really close look at how much less aid there is to cities compared to where it was, say, in the 1970s, 1980s. And we also need to look at where we get the biggest bang for our buck, how money can be spent wisely and sensibly. And I would argue there should be more. I know you disagree, but uh, I think that the amount of money involved is part of the solution. I, I submit that if you could have doubled the amount of aid and they still would have gone bankrupt. For a this this debate for another time. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And we are a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out and how we can help you at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.